You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because Yahweh's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for Yahweh will bless you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For Yahweh your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that Yahweh your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to Yahweh against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this Yahweh your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As Yahweh your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this day. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So Yahweh your God will bless you in all that you do. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock, you shall dedicate to Yahweh your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before Yahweh your God, year by year at the place that Yahweh will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, 
You shall not sacrifice it to Yahweh your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it, as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 662 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, July 16th, and the year is 2023, and that was Deuteronomy chapter 15 as we continue to make our way through the Pentateuch in the Old Testament going a chapter at a time. Here we come to the business of granting a release every seven years. Here you have this idea of borrowers and lenders within the nation of Israel having a different approach, having a different mindset, being commanded by God to have a different mindset when it comes to the disposing of debt. And this whole idea of the year of Jubilee is just really fascinating to me. I think there's something there. I don't know that I've got it all figured out. Uh, In fact, I'm quite sure I don't have it all figured out, but I know that there's something there. There's something there that we would do well to think on and to ponder and to apply to a lot of this business of economic trouble and political debate. And as a conservative, I am an independent As far as when I register to vote, I register as an independent, but I am a conservative and unapologetically so, but I'm an independent conservative. And in some sense, I'm an independent because I'm a conservative. What I notice is there are many kinds of conservative, or there are people who think of themselves as conservatives for many different reasons. And some are very selective in their conservatism, while Most have a diverse set of motivations and a distinct influence or inspiration for why perhaps they are conservative. I would say most folks who are thinking of themselves in the United States of America these days as conservative are really just carrying the torch for their local area, the culture of their local area, or the culture of their family. And that's true on both sides of the political spectrum. I would say most people really have not thought deeply or very long at all. They haven't read widely. They haven't really studied it out what the reasons would be for their political biases or their political pre-commitments. But in some sense, that too is conservative. Everyone is a conservative about something. Otherwise, you are... (laughs) (laughs) naked in the woods uh, with nothing, right? To have clothes and to try and keep them in a good state is in some sense a conservative idea or a conservative action. My wife and I going to a used bookstore in Loveland, Wampus Books in Loveland, Colorado, yesterday, old books, used books, some antique books. 
that store being there, our going to that store, our engaging in transactions with the owner of that bookstore to buy books and him selling the books to us. In some sense, that's a conservative action and a conservative endeavor. And meanwhile, everybody is a progressive after a fashion. Otherwise, you just lay down and die, right? So this isn't an all or nothing enterprise. If you're a conservative, you maybe perhaps are conservative about certain principles and you approach with one or the other foot leading when you come to political questions or social conventions. If you are a progressive or we call you a progressive or you call yourself a progressive, you are leading with the other foot and you say, well, if we have to let go of or even tear down, even destroy certain artifacts in order to move forward and be prosperous and be blessed and to have more material benefit, then so be it, right? So be it. I want to conserve some things, but I'm willing to let go of what I have in order to get something better, or I'm willing to cajole other people to let go of what they have in order to get something better. What's interesting when you come to a passage like Deuteronomy 15 is there is no talk of conservative or liberal, and yet this chapter is all bound up in economic questions and in social questions and in family ties and in how the community is going to operate. In some sense, we have a description of scenarios that are likely to arise. They will arise. In fact, at one point in the reading for today, we see the poor are going to be in the land always, forever. You will always have poor people. That's quite the statement, particularly when some people absent an understanding of Deuteronomy 15 and other such passages or Jesus saying in the Gospels, the poor you will have with you always, echoing this. It was still true, right? If you will always have them, then when you say it again later, it's still true, if it was true the first time. But those who don't have a keen understanding of this idea that the poor you will have with you always in the modern era, have very often tried to abolish poverty. And actually, this seems, from my studying and considering, it seems as though something in the last century or so ignited an idea in earnest that poverty could be done away with entirely through human effort. If we just had the right political system, if we just had the right economic system, if we just had the right technology, if we just had the right social conventions, social mores, if we just had the right theology, we wouldn't have poor people. And so if you have poor people, that is taken by folks who have inherited that thinking to mean you must not have the right systems. You must not have the right ideals. You must not really have the right theology at root. If you're a Christian, you call yourself a Christian, but you have poor people in your community. And that's the wrong way to look at it, or at least there's more that needs to be determined and considered before you can make a statement like that to an individual or to a group of people. There's more that needs to be figured out besides just, are there poor people around? You could, in this context of Deuteronomy 15, have a poor brother who's fallen on hard times for whatever reason, maybe 
there was illness. Maybe there was an accident. Maybe he was unwise in his managing of affairs. Maybe he was lazy. Maybe he was not paying close attention to his economic interests. And now he's coming to you asking to borrow from you. And what we have God telling the people of Israel writ large on the macro is when you as an individual, right? Each one of you who make up the people of Israel, when you as an individual have your brother come to you asking to borrow, and you see that this seven-year cycle is coming to its terminus once again, don't withhold from your brother who's asking. If you have the wherewithal, if you have the extra to lend to him, do so. And also, interestingly, this is echoed in the New Testament as well, don't lend to your brother begrudgingly. Don't lend in a cranky way, in a grumpy way, in a uncheerful way. The Lord loves a cheerful giver in Deuteronomy 15 as well, as it turns out. And again, as with the poor being with us always, if it was true in Deuteronomy 15, we shouldn't be surprised that it's true in the Gospels when Jesus says the same thing. If it's true that the Lord loves a cheerful giver in the New Testament, we shouldn't be surprised to go back into passages like Deuteronomy 15 and see, ah, yep, he still loves a cheerful giver. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character hasn't changed. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. But, 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 what's interesting is there is a distinction here between those who are your fellow Israelites, if you're an Israelite, and those who are foreigners. And on some things, that's not the case. On many things, that's not the case. And we see that, and we have seen that as we've made our way through the Pentateuch. On many things, God explicitly tells the people there shall be one law for the native and for the sojourner among you. There shall be one law. It is irrelevant, really, whether they're from around here, whether they have all of the same cultural influences, all of the same opinions that you do. No, this is the law. If they're in your country, this is the law of the land, period, across the board. And what that does actually, too, is it puts to rest some folly that is also typical in our day, which says it's not okay to impose your morality on people who don't agree with your morality, people who don't subscribe to your morality. There's no even passing nod to that idea in the Old Testament. None whatsoever. When it comes to the law of the land, it's okay sometimes, sure, to say we're going to have one standard for everybody, regardless of whether you like it, agree with it, are familiar with it from your upbringing, from your cultural context. We're going to have one law. But here, actually, interestingly, when we're talking about the sabbatical year, one in every seven, to grant a release of debts, there is a distinction drawn between those who are native, those who are your people, and those who are not Israelites. And there are stern warnings as well about not being ruled over by foreign nations. Don't borrow from foreign nations because we don't want your country, Israel. We don't want 
your country to be ruled by those other nations, which is to say, borrowing in some sense makes you the servant or the slave of the one from whom you have borrowed, the one who has loaned to you this or that. And if we understood that better in our context today, I dare say we would take greater care in borrowing from other countries. The United States of America owing money to other countries, other countries holding our national debt, or refusing at a certain point, perhaps possibly, to continue holding our debt if they try to liquidate everything. What does that do to the value of our dollars on an individual basis? Because our representatives in Washington, for instance, have made these deals. They've discussed it, deliberated it, decided on this course of action. There's a lot of food for thought in Deuteronomy 15 about whether that was ever a good idea or whether it was always something of a foregone conclusion that it would lead to dependence. And what do we find, right? What do we find on an individual basis? Also, if you scale up to a macro, those who depend on others loaning their money, say, for instance, buying shares in a company or corporation, loaning money for buying a vehicle or a home or a piece of land, those who depend on others to loan to them are always very conscious, very concerned with what will keep their creditors happy. And if that breaks down at a certain point, well then, a lot of things can happen. And yet we have an orderly discharge of debts on a cycle every seven years here in Deuteronomy 15. That's part of where bankruptcy law comes from in the U.S., although they changed it in recent years from being that you could only declare bankruptcy every seven years to being every eight. I'm not sure why that is unless it was, and these days it would be, a self-conscious desire to distance our laws from any kind of biblical inspiration, but it's kind of like the difference between B.C. and A.D. on the one hand, before Christ, and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, and then on the other hand, C.E. for Common Era, B.C.E., before Common Era. You can change the terminology. You can fiddle with where you're going to start from, but it's close enough, and we know what the reference point was originally. But there's something about this idea of orderly discharges where debt is concerned on a cycle every seven years. And just think about how much stability such a process adds to an economy. Yes, there are people who are winners and losers, but it's an orderly and repeating and predictable and stable system of establishing who wins when and who loses when. And in comparison to what we've been doing here in the U.S. for the last, oh, at least century, right? At least century. I would say the wisdom of God in giving this economic system or this economic prescription to Israel is better than the wisdom that we think we have today with our monetary policy. Just look at the crashes. Look at the bubbles. Look at the depression. 
about a century ago. Look at the recessions. Look at the efforts to try and prevent recessions or get out of them and correct them and how often those efforts at correcting recessions actually prolong them or make them worse. Perhaps it would be better if we took more time to study examples like Deuteronomy 15. We've got it right there. right? We have it right there, this idea of it being macro in the sense of these are the principles for everybody. The cycle is macro, right? You don't on an individual basis decide what the starting and end point for a particular seven-year cycle is if you are an Israelite in this context, in the context of Deuteronomy 15. You're not deciding that. That's already set, right? That's established on the macro. Everybody can see it. Everybody's playing by that cycle's rules according to God. But the expression of it is on the individual basis. All the way down to your brother who lives next to you comes knocking on the door asking if he can borrow a little bit because he's come up short, right? You on an individual basis and even just from the standpoint of how you are thinking and feeling about it, you on the most intimate and individual of bases need to actually make this a reality. And yes, it does matter. It does matter to God what kind of an attitude you have as you are doing the thing. And this is something the socialists won't hear. They don't understand. They don't care about it. They don't care about whether you're a cheerful giver or not. They'll take your wealth and they will redistribute it. They will take your property and they will redistribute it regardless of whether others need per se, because their program, their scheme is at odds with, it's either ignorant of or disbelieving of the promise that the poor you will have with you always. And so in some sense, they've written themselves a blank check to try and make a war on poverty. It's the gift that keeps on giving if actually for some people who are socialistic, What they really want is to be that middleman who gets to feel important. They are cheerful givers of other people's money. (laughs) It's easy for them to be cheerful about it because it's not their money. It's not their wealth. It's not their property. And yet, is that right? Is that in the eyes of God, good for them to take by force on pain of fines or lawsuits or arrest and imprisonment, or even when you really come down to it, any of those being resisted on pain of death, is it really right for the socialists to write and pass laws by which they use the power of the government, the power of the state, to come in to your property, your paycheck, your bank account, and take what they will? because they've decided you don't need that. They've decided this other person, this whole host of other people, an endless world of other people are poorer than you. And oh, by the way, who is your brother? In the context of Deuteronomy 15, it would seem this is on a one-to-one basis. These are 
personal conversations that are being had in your local community, not some central committee based right next to the temple or in the temple deciding so-and-so has more than this other guy. These are things to ponder. These are things to think about. And again, with regards to political philosophy, political orientation, a conservative would look at this. If you're a Burkean conservative, a conservative would look at this in Deuteronomy 15 and say, there's something there that we should honor and we should respect and we should be good stewards of because it's our inheritance. There's something there that we should make sure we don't lose or forget or neglect. Whereas the progressive, the socialist, the leftist, the Marxist would say that needs to only be brought up when it gives them permission to do what they want to do, because that's what matters. Moving forward, what they think best, what they want, that's what matters. And it would be wrong in some sense. It would be immoral in some sense for you to remind them of what the Bible says or what is traditional or what is historical or really, at the end of the day, what God has commanded. And that, in a nutshell, I think pretty well summarizes the left-right divide. And actually, as I'm reading, and we'll talk more about this as we go, as I'm reading The Conservative Mind from Burke to Elliot by Russell Kirk, I am appreciating anew and afresh and in new ways how this has been the distinction between the right and the left politically for centuries. And there's a very large cast of characters, thinkers, philosophers, poets, statesmen, churchmen, intellectuals, academics, who have played various roles on either side of these debates. But generally speaking, if you really boil it down, consistently those on the conservative side are pointing back to the unchangeable character of God's commands and his purposes and his promises and saying, we need to ratify that in our day. We need to honor our father and our mother after a fashion in being good stewards of what we've inherited from previous generations of our forefathers. This needs to be local and individual whenever possible that these things are worked out, expressed, negotiated. And on the left, you have this idea that liberation means you break with the conventions of your parents and other generations previous. And really, at the end of, at the, end of the day, you break with the commands of God. And in fact, liberation for the left, politically, philosophically, is you completely separate yourself and your community and society and the world from any notion of obedience to God. And that really, my friends, at root explains why so often conservatives and liberals or conservatives and progressives or conservatives and leftists not just disagree on so many things. And oh, by the way, it's not just tribalism. It's not just Democrats say something and then conservatives, Republicans 
are just against it because the Democrats said it. No, no. Philosophically, as far as ways that we arrive at conclusions, decisions, priorities, what our pre-commitments are, what our presuppositions are, at our foundations, we have a fundamental disagreement about whether there should be any consideration of the law of God, the commands of God, the purpose of God, the character of God. We fundamentally disagree about that. And so, therefore, on issue after issue, you have some who say, we just need the smartest man in our generation to put together a coalition of the other smartest men in our generation, and they will figure it out. And that's why the left wants experts so often is they realize well, if we're not going to listen to God, we need somebody smart to tell us what to do. And conservatives, meanwhile, have plenty of intelligent people. In fact, I would go farther. I would say conservatives have wiser people. There is more wisdom on the part of conservatives because there is more humility on the part of conservatives. God gives grace to the humble, but also the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom Conservatives have historically, from Burke to the present, had more humility before the laws of God, before the commands of God, before the promises of God, before the character, the holiness of God. Conservatives consistently have more fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, than anybody who speaks for the left, agitates for the left, enacts resolutions for the left. And we need to know that there's a difference. We need to know that there's a distinction. There's an important delineation between, on the one hand, knowing many things, and on the other hand, having wisdom. These are not interchangeable. They're not synonymous. Now, they're not mutually exclusive either, but what is the principal claim of the left again and again? We know better. We know more. That's how they define expertise, how much they know. And you're supposed to accept that they haven't established whether they're any wiser for knowing. You're supposed to not notice that category confusion, wherein they claim to know so much and they can cite statistics, facts, and figures, whether they cite them accurately or in context, though, that's a question of wisdom. Wisdom has to do with understanding the relationship between facts. And the left is very short on wisdom. And yet, if we would get along, if we would be able to win one another over and live at peace with one another and make decisions together, those on the left who have their facts must borrow wisdom from their conservative neighbors. And as a matter of fact, depending on how you want to read Deuteronomy 15, that is the difference between the, the one who is poor, who is asking to borrow, and the one who has something that they could lend. The one who can lend has conserved, held back a portion of what they've grown, what they've raised, what they have obtained through trade. They have conserved, and the poor one who lives next door has not, for whatever reason. Between conservatives and liberals, there needs to be some kind of a 
changing of hands, so to speak, although if we loan them wisdom, we don't have any less of it. And actually, I think the Lord would bless us with more wisdom as conservatives. If we lend wisdom to those who have so many facts, but they don't have a lot of wisdom, they don't have a lot of understanding, if they would borrow instead of trying to just take the fruits of our labors, if they would borrow, they would be all the wiser and we would be all the better for it. But such as it is, when this wisdom in Deuteronomy 15, for instance, is rejected, what do we get instead? We don't get better wisdom as though we know better than God. What we get is folly and oppression and abuse and fraud and the taking of bribes and the giving of bribes and deceit. We get the pitting of brother against brother. We get agitation. We get slander. In all too many cases, we get murder and theft because those are biblical categories. Certain behaviors that we see as just a normal matter of course politically should be put into those categories of murder and theft. It's not all just politics. And it's not all okay so long as the person doing the stealing or the killing has a badge, has a title, has an office in your local county, state, or federal government. But the big question is, do we have the wisdom to take our situation in a better direction? And to look to previous generations, to look to how these things have been handled in times past, how they've been discussed, debated, deliberated, to take all of it and lay it at the feet of the Lord our God and ask him for wisdom. Just like it would be great if the liberals who have caused so much trouble, their folly having led to so much criminality and poverty and misery and brokenness. It would be great if they would come to us as conservatives and ask for wisdom. But so also, if we would have anything to give them, whether or not they're too proud to ask us, if we would be wise, we must ask God for wisdom when we lack it so that we have something to give. Now, I want to talk about a couple of current events items, actually three or four, maybe over the course of this podcast episode. We'll touch on them briefly just so we come back to the present and we're not just thinking in the platosphere philosophically and abstract ideas only so that we ground our thinking in reality and also practical things. Not either or. Don't just be theoretical. Don't just be practical. Be principled and also pragmatic all at the same time. That's a good principle, and it's very pragmatic (laughs) to be principled. (laughs) Dude got into a fender bender in his Rivian. Insurance offered $1,600. The repair bill was $42,000. A Rivian owner, Business Insider reports, said his R1T electric pickup truck cost about $42,000 to fix after it was hit at a stoplight earlier this year, according to a report from the New York Times. Chris Apfelstadt told the publication that while he'd expected the repair wouldn't be cheap, it was a shocking number. The incident, which occurred February in Columbus, Ohio, was at first believed to be somewhat minor, according to the Times report, which said the other driver's insurance offered to pay about $1,600 
But after the electric car was taken to a repair shop that was certified to work with Rivian products, the cost jumped to $42,000, the publication said. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but I just bring it up to make the point that the push for, the demand for electric-only vehicles is coming from the left. And this is a great case study in what they do on topic after topic, issue after issue. They think the world will be a better place if everybody has electric vehicles, whether or not electric vehicle technology and our economic capacity to make and to maintain the electric vehicles is there and ready for prime time at the scale that they want. They think they can push these things from the top down. They get together in Davos or they get together in Washington, D.C. They talk about it and they come up with some very bright ideas and then they tell everyone, okay, we're going to this. Why? Because they're the smartest men in the world as they see it. They're the ones who are truly rational, truly reasonable. The rest of us are just poor dumb animals that need to be told what to do. But then sometimes the poor dumb animals are like, yes, I agree. You are very smart. You've got lots of facts and you look so good on TV and you dress so handsomely or so beautifully. And if you're willing to give me some kind of a um, tax rebate or what have you, or if you're willing to give the electric car company some kind of a tax rebate or some kind of a grant to bring the cost of these things down. Sure. Yeah. What's not to like about an electric vehicle? I'll take one. Yeah. I think my next vehicle will be an electric vehicle. And then, and then when the rubber meets the road, no pun intended, you find that, hold on a second, this is not practical at all. $42,000. I get into a minor fender bender incident at a stoplight and I've got to get a brand new vehicle essentially for the cost of what it would be to repair this one. What? Surely not. And a lot of folks, just like they expect when they're driving around, oh, insurance will cover it. If I get into an accident, insurance will cover it. I have insurance. Other people are required to have insurance. It'll be fine. They also think the same way about the intellectuals in society, the ones in the academy, the ones in the legislature, the ones on TV. They think that that's a kind of insurance policy. And guess what? It is to an extent, but it's not infinite. And sometimes people oversell their ideas because they're trying to sell their books or they're trying to stay in office or they're trying to get tenure, or they're trying to maintain what really at root is an overinflated sense of themselves at the end of the day. They were very confident, but wrong. (laughs) They were wrong, put simply. We should pay attention to individual examples like this in relation to the California Air Regulatory Board requirement, arbitrary wish casting that internal combustion engine vehicles will be banned in the next several years. You won't even be able to buy them. You won't be able to make them if you're a manufacturer. You won't be able to buy them if you're a dealership. You won't be able to sell them because the individual consumers in California and in other states that just copy-paste whatever California's air regulatory board tells them, 
they won't be able to buy anything but electric vehicles or bicycles. I suppose you could do that too. Buy a bicycle or just walk, right? Walk everywhere. Pay attention to situations like this because yes, these macro ideas that sound very smart on the front end do at a certain point have to actually be tried. And when they're tried, if it's a one size fits all and everybody's forced to do what the supposedly smartest people in the country or in your state or in your county or in your city have demanded, if everybody has to do what they thought was best, but it actually wasn't for the best, well, then where are your backup ideas, right? Are you allowed to have backup ideas? As a matter of fact, if you have a uniparty, are you even allowed to criticize the decisions that were passed down from the central authority? Are you allowed to point out that, hey, this isn't working so good? This is actually doing real harm. This is actually eating into my ability to get to work or take my kids to school or go to church or go to the grocery store. This is really actually grinding my life to a halt. If it's a uniparty and if the corporate media is all in on it, saying the same thing, reading from the same script, reading from the same talking points sheet, maybe you don't even get to point out when these ideas in practice are very impractical. But let's check in on Ron DeSantis, Florida governor, running for president in 2024. I've said it before. I'll say it again. He has my vote. I hope he is the nominee for the Republican Party. I can't see how, if we have free and fair elections, he could lose the general election if he is the nominee. But there's a number of clips Ryan Saavedra has served up over at the Daily Wire under an article titled, Ron DeSantis Makes Waves at Republican Presidential Forum in Iowa. I won't play all of them for you for the sake of time in this episode, but I will play the very last of the clips. This will be cut one, wherein Tucker Carlson is asking Ron DeSantis what he thinks of a central bank digital currency. Here it is. Take a listen. So um, how concerned are you that in the wake of whatever the next economic disruption that we're going to face is, and everyone kind of feels like maybe there's something coming, um, that will wind up with digital currency issued by the central bank? Well, if I am the president on day one, we will nix central bank digital currency. Done, dead, not happening in this country, in the state of Florida, because the Fed has been talking about this. Oh, yeah. And what the Fed said was, well, you know, we wouldn't do it without consulting the legislative and executive branches. Ideally, we would get a law passed. No, 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 no. That's not how the Constitution says. It's only ideal that you get a law passed. You would have to get a law passed. I don't think Congress would pass that. So I think the Fed may try to do something unilaterally. So what we did in Florida is we basically passed a law that says we do not recognize CBDC in the state of Florida. And I think other states are probably going to follow suit. That will jam their ability to do it through executive action. They don't have authority to do it. There'd be lawsuits and everything. For those who don't know what CBDC is, what they want to do, and this is tied in with like Davos, World Economic Forum, all these people. They want the Fed, they want to get rid of cash. They want no cryptocurrency. And they want this to be the sole form of legal tender. And they have said this publicly at like Davos and these other places. It will allow them to prohibit 
quote, undesirable purchases like fuel and ammunition. And so the minute you give them the power to do this, they are going to impose a social credit system on this country. CBDC is a massive threat to American liberty. On January 20th, 2025, it goes to the ash heap of history in this country. Okay, so <clears throat> great, great. I, I love it. Let's make it happen. <laughs> uh, make Ron DeSantis being president in 2025 happen. Of course, that's what I mean. What he's describing there with this desire for a digital currency, all digital, cashless, what he's describing there in conjunction with a social credit score and the banning of undesirable purchases, that's 100% correct. That's true story. It sounds like science fiction. I know. If you haven't researched it, do. Go look it up. Go look up audio and video of the folks who are for this explaining the reasons that they are for it. They are talking openly about deciding what common people will and won't be able to purchase. And that's how they'll not just ration when times are tough, but that's how they will control their political opponents. That's how they get the radical egalitarian wealth redistribution at a global scale. That's how they combat climate change in their minds. That's how they promote social justice in their minds. That's how they enact legal plunder, as Bastiat would say. This is the scaled up and global ambition. And as it's being proposed in the US, it is a doubling down on the same kind of wrong think, really, truly. I mean, not wrong think like they would say, but it's, it is wrong think. They're thinking wrongly, just like they have with electric vehicles. Only you won't be able to do anything else. If you want to buy somebody's used internal combustion engine pickup truck because your electric pickup truck is going to cost $42,000 to repair, all they'll have to do is say with their algorithms, that purchase has been denied, has been declined. No, you can't. Even if you have the money, you can't do it because so-called greater interests, better causes would be harmed by you doing this thing. On the macro, the very, very smart people don't need you to have that. In fact, they don't want you to have that. The potential for tyranny and abuse isn't hypothetical. This is totalitarianism that's being proposed in the central bank digital currency. And so it's not all theoretical. It's not all just ideas and philosophers debating back and forth. This is your business. This is your affairs. When Paul the Apostle writes in his letter to the church at Thessalonica about aspiring to live a quiet life, this makes that impossible, really. If these kinds of schemes are enacted and you say nothing about them, you're not minding your own affairs, really, truly. You're not. And you're not providing for the needs of your own family or your own household if you see this kind of trouble coming and you don't say anything about it. If you shrug and you say, oh, well, yeah, whatever, this world is not my home, without having called for repentance, without having urged caution, without having warned those around you, especially those under your care, are you actually providing for 
the needs of your family, especially the members of your own household. So we can't be nonchalant. We can't be indifferent. We can't just shrug. These are not just ideas. These are ideas that have been tried in countries and in localities, and they have always led to privation and oppression. And they will on a global scale as well if we don't stop them, if we don't oppose them. And we have to oppose them in a public way. It can't just be you've made up your mind privately and then you just keep it to yourself. No, you have to be able to speak out against these things. You have to be able to let the people know who are trying to push for these things. They're trying to ramrod them through in the midnight hour during a snowstorm when they think there will be no opposition. You have to be watching those people and you have to at least have representation that will stand up to those kinds of people and tell them, no, I'm watching. No, you cannot do this thing. No. In other news, though, lest we run out of time here, new state education commissioner, Susanna Cordova, visits Greeley. Anne Delaney reports July 14th in the Greeley Tribune. And let's just check out the first paragraph here, shall we? And I quote, as part of learning more about a new job, Colorado Education Commissioner Susanna Cordova has been meeting with her employers, the members of the nine-person State Board of Education. Okay, just full stop, end quote. Check out the rest of the article for context. Look into it on your own time. Ask me to do a follow-up if you find something really rich and important that I should be focused more on. But just for a moment with me, consider the way that this woman and her role with regards to in relation to education in the state of Colorado is framed from the jump in the Greeley Tribune. The Colorado Education Commissioner is trying to learn about trying to get to know, trying to meet with her employers, the State Board of Education. This is how the Soviet system does the bait and switch. This is how communists consistently reframe things to evade accountability, to evade cross-examination. They can seem correct until the second comes and examines them, but once they've been cross-examined, then the cat's out of the bag, and it's very hard for them to maintain the silence is consent mandate that they yearn so much for. The State Board of Education might be who this commissioner would report to, but if you're a parent in, uh, I don't know, Weld County, for instance, Northern Colorado generally, maybe Greeley specifically, District 6, if you're a parent and you've been really concerned about what your child is being given in the way of an education or in the way of influences, if you're concerned about your child being talked into affirming gender theory or critical race theory, if you've been told as a parent to just butt out as anti-capitalism, anti-free market, pro-communist lessons are being taught to your child on issue after issue, on topic after topic, you read this first paragraph in the Greeley Tribune, and you're supposed to leave it to the very smart people on the State Board of Education, the nine-person State Board of Education. Leave it to them because they're the ones who are going to make this decision. It's not your place to question them. It's not your place to 
challenge the Colorado Education Commissioner. Who are you? Who do you think you are to say that these people work for you? No, no, no. They don't work for you, mom, dad. They work for the people, so-called. Who are the people? Well, they're pretty much the same group in every communist enterprise. The people are the experts at the very top who decide on behalf of the unreasonable brute beast animals who make up the bulk of society what's best for them. And essentially, the people is a catch-all. This or that party boss can have a lavish mansion, all the while deriding poverty and the capitalists and free market principles, all the while calling for an end to private gun ownership without permission, without express, explicit permission being granted from the state, the abolition of private property. They can do all of that from the governor's mansion or from the mayor's mansion because it's really the people's mansion, right? They're enjoying largesse on behalf of the people. And they have to because they're the smartest person. Just ask them and they need to be able to focus up, to be able to provide in order to make decisions, in order to carry out the will of the people. What is the will of the people? They'll tell you. No, 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 no. Don't go asking the people themselves, like the persons, the individuals in your community, you know, your neighbor, your brother, your family, members of your own household. Don't ask them. And don't you dare talk back because their employer is the people or their employer is some apparatchik in the state as they have conceived of it. But this is an end run as I see it. This is very subtle propaganda to cut the legs out from under individual parents, coalitions of parents in Northern Colorado, in Weld County, in Greeley, in District 6, when they show up to a school board meeting or they protest in the community and they say, hey, this is pornography that you're giving to our kids. What is this? Why are you having these after-school programs where you're trying to talk our sons and daughters into changing their pronouns or taking drugs that are going to sterilize them or going through gender mutilation surgery that will effectively prevent them from ever being able to have kids. Why are you doing that? You can't do that. That's not okay. And what's sad for me is I look at this and I see a lot of parents who are trying to reason with folks who have already made up their minds and they're not going to listen. The only thing you can really do is either remove these people from positions of authority. Good luck with that. When So often the game is rigged by these same folks and their political party. You either have to remove them from these positions of authority. If you want someone to listen to you, if you want something better, or you have to remove your children and yourself wherever possible, whenever possible from under the authority, under the care of these people. If what they're doing is immoral, ungodly, even insane at times, and you want to, and you should, and you need to, and you are required to protect your children from their predations, from their oppressions, you either have to get these folks out or you have to get your kids out. And this is why we homeschool. I would ask you whether virtue is a priority. 
is virtue, is good character a priority in education or in how we engage in the political process or how we evaluate and assess various options that are put forward, various candidates and their initiatives? Is character a priority? Is virtue important? You might ask, if you haven't thought about that a whole lot, and you don't even know, really, what is virtue? Actually, what is it? We don't ever talk about it, right? It wasn't taught in school. It's not important. It's not a priority in the schools. And again, this is why we homeschool. The cardinal virtues, there is some debate as to what makes the shortlist, what they are. The cardinal virtues, in a classical sense, are prudence, Justice, fortitude, and temperance. So that is to say, wisdom is a virtue. That's what prudence is. It is the ability to discern the appropriate course of action to be taken in a given situation at the appropriate time with consideration of potential consequences. That's prudence. How about justice, right? What is justice? In some sense, you could say, that's just being fair. But also you could say, that's righteousness, Justice is righteousness, right standing with God and in relation to the laws of God, the commands of God. How about fortitude? That's not a word we use very often. What is fortitude? Well, it's courage. It's endurance. It's moral strength. It is the ability to confront your fears, to face them, even in the face of threats, intimidation, and uncertainty. That's fortitude. How about temperance, though? Temperance is restraint. That's the ability to abstain, to be discreet, to be moderate. You might say temperance is self-control. Temperance is the ability to not just take the shiny object, the thing that you want impulsively, but to be able to hold back in conjunction with these other virtues, would it be just, for instance, for me to take this thing? Would that be something I need to be self-controlled and restrained about? How about, would it be courageous if I'm going to be self-controlled with courage? My courage needs to have self-control added to it in order for the courage to have a good effect and for it to not be folly of a reckless variety. But then that goes back to prudence as well. If my self-control is not according to wisdom, then what is that, right? Oh, great. You controlled yourself in a foolish way. Not selling it. (laughs) So these four cardinal virtues, you might contrast with the New Testament, but you should also compare. Don't just contrast, also compare. Where we have Paul the Apostle defining what love is, for instance, where we have the Apostle Paul saying, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Ask, is it possible to have love that is not marked by prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance? What kind of love gives no thought to righteousness? What kind of love for God especially, but also love for your neighbor as you love yourself? What kind of love gives no thought to wisdom? Do we want to love Unwisely, but too well? Not wisely, but too well? No. How about if our love is not marked by courage? I love my wife and my children, but I don't have the guts 
to protect them or to work hard, put myself out there. Am I really loving them well? Am I loving them as well as I would if I had a courageous kind of a love towards them? So you can see these things go together very easily. It's not either or. It's actually that our love would be marked by, would be distinguished by these other things, these other virtues. And insofar as the people of antiquity, the Greeks, the Romans, whether only in a practical way at times benefited from embodying and celebrating and affirming and pursuing virtue, that's what Augustine would say in The City of God, is why they did so well for as long as they did pre-Christian Greece and Rome did so well because they pursued virtue more deliberately, intentionally, and consistently than did their neighbors, than did the surrounding nations. And so also, I come back to the question of what is education for? What is the point of education? What is the point of our having elections in the first place if we give no thought to virtue? In fact, in our day, I would say principally the debate is On the one hand, between those who would say, we should celebrate virtue, we should reward virtue, on the one hand, we should protect those who are being virtuous, we should honor those who are being virtuous, on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have people who want to be liberated from any such notion, and their only concept of right and wrong, good and bad, wise and foolish, is whether you would tell them they can have what they want. If you would say, yes, you can have what you want, then you are good in their eyes. You're a good person. You're virtuous. And so you have many people who virtue signal, which is to say that they want to be thought of as virtuous according to this paradigm. So they're going along with very evil, corrupt, vicious schemes so that they are thought virtuous. They want to be honored by men, but if they honor God with their lips, their hearts are far from him. And so what is that, right? What is that worth? Let's check back in on this family leadership summit that was held in Iowa, where Tucker Carlson interviewed some other candidates. I'll play for you a clip of Mike Pence responding to some questions and as Cardinal Pritchard over at Not to Be has put it, Tucker Carlson probably just ended Mike Pence's political career. Here it is. Cut to take a listen. Along the way, the Biden administration has been slow in providing military support. Make no mistake about this. We promised them 33 Abrams tanks in January. I heard again two weeks ago in Ukraine, they still don't have them. We've been telling them we'll train their F-16 pilots, but now they're saying maybe January we'll let somebody transfer some jets. I'm sorry, Mr. Vice President, have you, I know you're running for president. You are are distressed that the Ukrainians don't have enough American tanks. Every city in the United States has become much worse over the past three years. Drive around. There's not one city that's gotten better in the United States. And it's visible. Our economy has degraded. The suicide rate has jumped. Public filth and disorder and crime have exponentially increased. And yet your concern is that the Ukrainians, a country most people can't find on a map, who've received 
tens of billions of U.S. tax dollars don't have enough tanks. Right. I think it's a fair question to ask, like, where's the concern for the United States in that? Well, it's not my concern. Tucker, I've heard that routine from you before, but that's not my concern. I'm running for president of the United States because I think this country's in a lot of trouble. Okay, now, <laughs> cut, cut, cut. What was I just saying about virtue signaling and what was I just saying about the difference between conservatives on the one hand and progressives on the other hand, going way back, going back centuries? Also, too, what was I just saying about the difference between a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach? What was I just saying about in Deuteronomy 15, where you do have a macro framework that is decided from the top, ultimately, by God, but then it's not on an individual basis that you pick where the cycle begins and ends every seven years with the release of debt, the discharging of such liabilities. What was I just saying about all of that? And how can we take those ideas, that framework, and assess this back and forth between Tucker Carlson and Mike Pence? What you have is a rather more globalist agenda being prioritized over a very practical concern for American cities, American men and women and children, American families. That's what this summit is about. It's the Family Leadership Summit, which is to say the family is the priority. And yet Mike Pence gets up there and he says, literally, that's not my concern. Tucker Carlson lists all of these ways in which Americans who live in these cities across the U.S. are in greater danger. They are less safe. They are less prosperous, less able to provide for their families and the needs of their own households. Why are we talking about tanks for Ukraine? Why are we talking about fighter pilot training for Ukraine when this is what we've got going on at home in our own country? And Mike Pence literally says, that's not my concern. That's not my concern. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. Time out. <laughs> Time out. Something's gotten switched and flipped here. Something's very badly broken. That's backwards. My priority should be to provide for the needs of my own household first. Thereafter, my neighbor. Thereafter, my community. Thereafter, I look to the interests of the state and the nation. And then if I have something left, if I have some extra I will be happy once we have our own house in order to talk with you about some country on the opposite side of the planet. But if those priorities get switched, where we deal first with that country on the opposite side of the planet, not even allowed into NATO because supposedly, this is the reason, there are problems of political corruption, but we're going to send them blank check after blank check and all of our best weapons all of our best hardware, we're even going to train them on how to use it, but they're corrupt people, at least in their leadership. Maybe we also have some corrupt people in our leadership and we need to deal with those corrupt people in our leadership before we go fighting their wars and ushering in World War III. It, it doesn't have to be an either or, but it does have to be taken in sequence. There has to be an order of operations. 
Unfortunately, the ruling class in this country, they think of themselves as global citizens first and foremost. Only secondarily do they think of themselves as actually working for individual American moms and dads, protecting individual American children as is their first priority, as is their first responsibility. That's the oath that they take, not to be global citizens, because that's essentially to be the citizen of nowhere. Their first priority is supposed to be rewarding those who do good, punishing those who do evil here in the U.S. That's what I want to hear about. That's what we need to talk about. Start there with the folks who are preying on my children or my wife or my neighbor's children, my neighbor's wife, start there. Then maybe I'll want to hear what you have to say about Ukraine, with all due respect. But let's take a step back from current events for just a moment, or maybe even for the rest of this episode. As I mentioned earlier, I'm reading The Conservative Mind from Burke to Elliot by Russell Kirk, first published 1953. And I'm not going to do a review because I'm still working my way through the book. I'll bring you a review at the end once I have finished. But for now, I do want to share with you some insights and some quotes because I think they're timely and I think it will be too much for me to save everything for the final review. I was trying to find, because I listened to audiobooks, a printing of a certain quote of Kirk in relation to Burke. And I found it. I found one here in a piece by Nathaniel Blake, published September 2018 in the Catholic World Report, Right by Nature, Russell Kirk, Contemporary Conservatism and Natural Law is the name of this article. But here's a quote from Kirk. He said, Burke declared that men do not make laws. They merely ratify or distort the laws of God, end quote. Now just consider with me again the idea that virtue should be more at the fore where it pertains to how we educate our kids, how we participate in the political discourse, how we vote, how do we assess candidates who present their ideas and their platforms and their policy prescriptions. It really does need to, for the conservative and for the Christian, come down to, are we agreeing with God? Because God is always right. This Burkean idea that men are ratifying or distorting the laws of God is crucial. Again, Proverbs tells us the first to state his case seems correct. And so someone can claim that they are ratifying the laws of God, but that's why you have to have cross-examination. You have to have somebody who follows up And says, well, wait a second, wait a second. Is that what God actually said? Is that actually good? Is that actually true? The second must be able to come and examine the first to state their case. And if you do have some who say, oh no, I'm on the side of right and I love God and I just want to have a chance to serve God in this role and serve you people in this role with reverence for God. It can seem correct, but you have to cross-examine it and ask, is this actually ratifying the laws of God? Are we agreeing with God here? When it comes to policy prescriptions that seem correct, say, for instance, to address 
problems of poverty or criminal justice or border enforcement or whether we should have borders, immigration policy, monetary policy, foreign policy. If somebody says we should do X, Y, and Z, and it seems correct, the conservative thing to do is to go back to God's word and see what is written. Search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so that we would affirm them, that we would agree with them, that we would ratify them. If we have some who aren't even making the claim that this is good and godly and God-honoring, in fact, consistently again and again, they show themselves to be hostile to the commands of God, the promises of God, the character of God, the character of God's people, well then, that makes it simple. That makes it really easy. You can't join with those people. What fellowship does light have with darkness? You can't partner with those people. You certainly should not be sending your children to those people to be trained if at all, at all, at all, you can help it. But even if you can't help it and you have to, you're forced to after a fashion, you should be partnering with others to try and get better people, people of better character to replace those who are of bad character. That is a very conservative and a very Christian way to engage on these things. And yet, I'll admit there is a certain vanity to it. You have those who say it's hopeless, right? It's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. It's a losing battle. What's the point? Why get all upset? Why get invested? Why pay attention? Why speak up? And I've said it before. I'll say it again. Those people, to me, sound an awful lot like the earlier chapters of Ecclesiastes. You know, even just in reading The Conservative Mind from Burke to Elliot, going to a used bookstore yesterday, picking up a big stack of books, some great, some okay, but I think they'll be useful. I think they'll be great in the right circumstance. I feel the truth of Ecclesiastes 1. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, Solomon writes, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I feel that, right? I feel that if you listen to my podcast on a regular basis, maybe you feel it as well. And yet you have to read on. You have to continue reading to realize that there's more to it than the same event happens to them both. The rich man, the poor, the wise man, the fool, the righteous man, and the wicked. The same event happens to them both. Yes, it's vanity of vanities if this life is all there is. And yet there too, we find a fuller wisdom, a more complete wisdom looks to the life eternal in Christ, for those who are in Christ. And when you put it that way, yes, studying can have a purpose. Yes, political engagement can have a purpose. Yes, thinking deeply, reasoning, cross-examining those who seem correct can have a purpose, a good purpose, a God-honoring purpose. Particularly, if God has given you a purpose, well, that purpose can't be meaningless. It can't be a vanity of vanities. It can't be a chasing after the wind because God is eternal. God is all-wise, all-powerful, holy, and righteous. And he rewards those who 
love him. He gives grace to the humble. As Proverbs 10, 18 to 20 puts it, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So there we see virtues listed one after another in conjunction with one another, in tandem, working together. But verse 20, right? Verse 20 helps us to not stop short and check out. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We read elsewhere, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. Why is that? Because out of the abundance of their heart, they speak. The righteous speak. And they say what needs to be said. They speak true things that are relevant and pertinent because they have wisdom, because they fear the Lord, and they don't just speak, they also do. Now, I take a little bit of caution when words are many, transgression is not lacking. I think of that sometimes with as much content as I've put out over the years, blogging, writing, podcasting, conversing. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Yes, it's good at a certain point to stop talking. But there's a couple of ways in which the first stanza of Proverbs 10.19 can be taken, can be true. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. That is to say, one, you might have an increased likelihood of error and sin expressing itself the more you talk. That's one way to read it. Another way to read it is when there are sins being committed, when there are lies being spoken, when there are slanders against innocent people to destroy them, to prey on them, to oppress them, that is another way in which you could say transgression is not lacking. And perhaps you take that in conjunction with the tongue of the righteous being choice silver. It has value. It's worth speaking. It's important for you to invest your ability to speak on behalf of those who are being oppressed. The widow, the orphan, the sojourner, the poor man, in other cases, the rich, whoever is being oppressed, whoever is being falsely accused, whoever is being cut down or deceived or set up or defrauded, to say what is true, to cross-examine the first who states his case, who seems correct, but might be a con artist. They might be a mountebank. I would bring to your attention a certain article or page over at the Heritage Foundation. A report on American founders, this one, April 20th, 2020, 2020, John Adams, America's original conservative. Summary, John Adams, second president of the United States, leader of the Continental Congress in 1776, and one of America's greatest political thinkers, is among the most important of America's founders, rivaled only by James Madison in constitution making and constitutional thought, and quote, the man to whom the country is most indebted for the great measure of independence, end quote. Adams was one of the first and most important advocates of bicameralism, separation of powers, and the executive veto, as well as principal draftsman 
of the Constitution of Massachusetts, an important model for the federal constitution, his defense of the constitutions of government of the United States of America and discourses on Davila are among the most significant founding era works on American constitutional theory. This summary is written by Richard Samuelson, Associate Professor of History at California State University, San Bernardino. I won't read the whole thing for you. It's 26 minutes long. But I bring it to your attention in part because Russell Kirk brought it to my attention that John Adams was the American equivalent of Edmund Burke. John Adams thought these things through and whatever doctrinal differences we might have, he was a Unitarian, I see. He did a tremendous service to future generations maintaining that there should be a separation of powers and arguing forcefully for getting on board with supporting these troops in the field who were fighting to maintain, fighting to uphold the Declaration of Independence. John Adams was fussy and difficult for others to work with or to listen to at times, but he was very, very often right. And so he ruffled feathers, yes. And then he had others who were more tactful, more clever, more charming, come alongside, pull him aside, either help him by counseling him or help him by doing the talking thing. He was right in many of his ideas, his instincts, his principles, but he wasn't always, practically speaking, the best spokesperson for his own ideals. And I think we can learn a lot, even just in that much, knowing that much about him. Do we want to have better doctrine than John Adams being a Unitarian? Yes. Yes, we do. But here's the thing. What is our doctrine if we say, well, my theology is quite correct, but I'm going to dismiss everything that we've inherited from 1776 to the present and before 1776 for that matter, I'm going to dismiss all of the above because I would have doctrinal differences with those of the founding fathers who were deists, those of the founding fathers who were Unitarians, those of the founding fathers who owned slaves or did this or did that other thing. If the standard is in order for us to take seriously what they wrote or to consider what it is that they passed down to us If the standard is that they were perfect or it was worthless, then I think we're going to read our Bibles very wrongly as well. I commented here in recent weeks about the warning that Moses gives from God to Israel when you're established in the land. Don't think as you enjoy food grown in gardens and vineyards that you didn't plant sitting in homes that you didn't build, in cities that you didn't build, don't think it's because you were so much more righteous than all the nations that God gave you this land, this good land, and established you in it. Don't think that it's because you are so righteous. No, it's because God is righteous. So also with our founding fathers, and even just the idea of being conservative, don't think that it's predicated on these men being so good and morally perfect and having only all the right theology. If they were more correct, surely that would be preferable 
that we would conserve where they were correct and we would study it and we would consider it, surely that would be more preferable to us also being imperfect and being totally disengaged and giving our countrymen, our families, our friends over to the wicked. Those who aren't even correct at their foundations, at a presuppositional level, on anything. Insofar as there's no fear of God before their eyes, insofar as they hate God and they hate the people of God, how could we forsake the inheritance that we have from men like John Adams in favor of giving America to communism, to atheism? I, for one, can't. I don't see that as virtuous. I don't see that as particularly godly or wise. I can't, and I would encourage you not to either. But consider with me, if you will, a letter from the National Archives from John Adams to John Taylor, dated April 19th, 1814. Sir, he writes, that aristocracies, both ancient and modern, have been variable and artificial, as well as natural and unchangeable. Mr. Adams knows, as well as Mr. Taylor, and has never denied or doubted, that, quote, they have all proceeded from moral causes, end quote, is not so clear, since many of them appear to proceed from physical causes, many from immoral causes, many from pharisaical, Jesuitical, and Machiavellian villainy, many from sacerdotal, and despotic fraud, and as many as all the rest from democratical dupery, credulity, adulation, corruption, adoration, superstition, and enthusiasm. If all these cannot be regulated by political laws and controlled, checked, or balanced by constitutional energies, I am willing, Mr. Taylor, should say of them, as Bishop Burnett said of the hierarchy or the severest things he can express or imagine, that nature makes king bees or queen bees. I have never heard or read, but I never read in any philosopher or political writer, as I remember, that nature makes state kings and lords of state. Though even this, for aught I know, might be sometimes pretended. I have read of hereditary rights from Adam and Noah and the divine right of nobility derived from the dukes of Edom, but the divine rights did not make kings till holy oil was poured upon their heads from the file brought down from heaven in her beak by the Holy Ghost in the person of a dove. If we consult books, Mr. Taylor, we shall find that nonsense, absurdity, and impiety are infinite. Whether the policy of the United States has been wisdom or folly is not the question at present, but it is confidently asserted without fear of contradiction that every page and every line of Mr. Adams' writings has ever written was intended to illustrate, to prove, to exhibit, and to demonstrate its wisdom. The association of Mr. Adams and Philmar in the third page may excite a smile. I give you full credit, Mr. Taylor, for the wit and shrewdness of this remark. It is droll and good-humored. But if ever policy was in diametrical opposition to Philmar, it is that of the United States. If ever writings were opposed to his principles, Mr. Adams's are so opposed, they are as much so as those of Sidney or Locke. 
Mr. Adams thanks Mr. Taylor for proposing in the third page to analyze and ascertain the ideas intended to be expressed by the word aristocracy. This is one of those words which have been abused. It has been employed to signify anything, everything, and nothing. Mr. Taylor has read Mr. Locke's chapter on the abuse of words, which, though it contains nothing but what daily experience exhibits to all mankind, ought, nevertheless, if he had never written anything else, to secure him immortal gratitude and renown. Without the learning of Luzac, Vanderkemp, Jefferson, or Parsons, Mr. Adams recollects enough of Greek to remember that aristocracy originally signified the government of the best men. But who are to be judges of the best men? Who is to make the selection of the best men from the second best, and the third, and the fourth, and so on ad infinitum? For good and bad are infinitely divisible, like matter. Aye, there's the rub. Despots, monarchs, aristocrats, and democrats have in all ages hit at times upon the best men in the best sense of the word, but at other times, and much more frequently, they have all chosen the very worst men, the men who have the most devotedly and most slavishly flattered their vanity, gratified their most extravagant passions, and promoted their selfish and private views. Without searching volumes, Mr. Taylor, I will tell you in a few words what I mean by an aristocrat, and consequently, what I mean by aristocracy. By an aristocrat, I mean every man who can command or influence two votes, one beside his own. Take the first hundred men you meet in the streets of a city or on a turnpike road in the country and constitute them a democratical republic. In my next letter, you may have some conjectures of what will appear in your new democracy from John Adams. So this is great, right? This is great. End quote. Stop. Cut. (laughs) This is great. That John Adams endeavors to admit that very often, not the best men, the worst men are chosen to lead, to rule, to govern. And oh, by the way, it's not an accident that he holds that view and also pushed for separation of powers, pushed for a bicameral rather than unicameral legislature. Why? Because men sometimes flatter and cajole and indulge the worst interests. Sometimes they're manipulative, sometimes they're fraudulent, sometimes they're oppressive, sometimes they're tyrannical. And the way to protect against that is to have other men who have power in a system of checks and balances and even the people to have a system of checks and balances. And so in some sense, if he's right that an aristocrat is just anybody who commands his vote and someone else's, any of us, if we're able to persuade others to do what is right in our voting, to speak truly in our voting about who the best men are, we are being aristocratic, which is a rather fun notion, if I do say so. But that is to say as well, John Adams, by that definition, was an aristocrat and still is because he's still persuading men to vote for the best men. Next, let's consider a bit of writing that is older, 
And again, will hopefully help us to get some perspective and to understand where we find ourselves today, particularly in Greeley, Colorado. I found an article from 1909 over at JSTOR, originally published in Political Science Quarterly, Volume 24, Number three, written by a certain John R. Commons. John R. Commons was an American institutional economist, Georgist, progressive labor historian at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He was originally born in Hollinsburg, Ohio, 1862. He had a religious upbringing, which led him to be an advocate for social justice early in life. Commons was considered a poor student and suffered from a mental illness while studying. He was allowed to graduate without finishing because of the potential seen in his intense determination and curiosity. At this time, Commons became a follower of Henry George's single tax economics. He carried his gorgeous, Georgist, or Ricardian approach to economics with a focus on land and monopoly rents throughout the rest of his life, including a proposal for income taxes with higher rates on land rents. After graduating from Oberlin College, Commons did two years of graduate studies at John Hopkins University, where he studied under Richard T. Eli, but left without a degree. After appointments at Oberlin and Indiana University, Commons began teaching at Syracuse University in 1895. In spring 1899, Syracuse dismissed him as a radical. Eventually, Commons re-entered academia at the University of Wisconsin in 1904. Commons' early work exemplified his desire to unite Christian ideals— with the emerging social sciences of sociology and economics, he was a frequent contributor to Kingdom Magazine, was a founder of the American Institute for Christian Sociology, and authored a book in 1894 called Social Reform and the Church. He was an advocate of temperance legislation and was active in the National Prohibition Party. By his Wisconsin years, Commons' scholarship had become less moralistic and more empirical, and he moved away from a religious viewpoint in his ethics and sociology. So, Before I read for you this piece from 1909 by John R. Commons, let's note the progressive, by the end of his life, having moved away from a Christian viewpoint. This says religious, but really Christian viewpoint. As he tried to wed Christianity with his progressivism, what won out in the end was his progressivism until the Christianity had fallen by the wayside, and then he carried on with empiricism. Note also his being a progressive and being for temperance. I go back to some other recent comments I've made about certain things that perhaps we ought not to speak for God in declaring sin. If God has not declared them sin, then that's that. If you want to say, I don't think it's wise, I don't think it's good, I think we should stop people from doing everything that I think is unwise, I say, that is the road to hell, paved with good intentions, your good intentions are somewhat beside the point, look at the Osborne Reef in the 1970s. That was good intentions too, and it's still a mess. But without further ado, I will read for you Horace Greeley and the Working Class Origins of the Republican Party at least some excerpts, because I live in Greeley, Colorado, with my wife and children, and I find this interesting. I find it relevant. To quote from page 470, 
For ideas like methods of getting a living have their evolution, the struggle for existence, the elimination of the unfit, the survival of the fit, control these airy exhalations from the mind of man as they control the more substantial framework of his existence. The great man is the man in whose brain the struggling ideas of the age fight for supremacy until the survivors come out adapted to the economic struggle of the time. Judged by this test, Horace Greeley was the prophet of the most momentous period of our history. The evolution of his ideas is the idealistic interpretation of our history. Greeley's life was itself a struggle through all the economic oppressions of his time. In his boyhood, his father had been reduced by the Panic of 1819 from the position of small farmer to that of day laborer. The son became an apprentice in a printing office, then a tramp printer. And when he drifted into New York in 1831, he found himself in the midst of the first working men's political party with its first conscious struggle in America for the rights of labor. Pushing upwards as publisher and editor, the Panic of 1837 brought him down near to bankruptcy, but the poverty of the wage earners about him oppressed him more than his own. Quote, we do not want alms, end quote, he heard them say. Quote, we are not beggars. We hate to sit here day by day, idle and useless. Help us to work. We want no other help. Why is it that we can have nothing to do, end quote? Revolting against this social anarchy, as he called it, he espoused socialism and preached protectionism. This was the beginning of his isms. Not that he had been immune before to cranky notions. When only a boy of 13, he broke away from the unanimous custom of all classes, ages, and both sexes. <laughs> Note, both sexes. Two, just two. By resolving never again to drink whiskey. When Dr. Graham proclaimed vegetarianism in 1831, he forthwith became an inmate of a Graham boarding house. But these were personal isms. They bothered nobody else. Not until the long years of industrial suffering that began in 1837 did his isms become gospels and his panaceas propaganda. His total abstinence of 1824 became prohibitory legislation in 1850. His vegetarianism of the 30s became abolition of capital punishment in the 40s. The crank became the reformer when once the misery and helplessness of the workers cried aloud to him. Greeley's isms are usually looked upon as the amiable weaknesses of genius. They were really the necessary inquiries and experiments of the beginnings of constructive democracy, political democracy, theretofore had been negative. Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson needed no creative genius to assert equal rights. They needed only to break down special privilege by widening the rights that already existed. Jefferson could frame a bill of rights, but he could not construct a constitution. Jackson could kill a Munster bank, but he could not invent a people's control of the currency. Negative democracy in 1776, in 1800, in 1832 had triumphed. It had done its needful work, but its day was ended when a thousand wildcat banks scrambled into the bed of the departed Munster. Political democracy went bankrupt when the industrial bankruptcy of 1837 exposed its incapacity. It had vindicated equal rights, but where was the bread and butter? The call of the time was for a new democracy, one that should be social and economic rather than political, constructive rather than negative, whose motto should be reform, not repeal, take hold, not let alone. But there were no examples or precedents 
of such a democracy. The inventor of a sewing machine or the discoverer of a useful chemical compound endures hundreds of failures before his idea works, but his failures are suffered at home. The world does not see them. Only his success is patented. But the social inventor must publish his ideas before he knows whether they will work. He must bring others to his way of thinking before he can even start his experiment. The world is taken into his secret while he is feeling his way. They see his ideas in the ism stage. To the negative Democrat, this brings no discredit. He has no device to offer. To the constructive Democrat, it brings the stigma of fatism. The conservatives see in him not only the radical, but also the crank with a machine that might possibly work. Greeley's Tribune prior to 1854 was the first and only great vehicle this country has known for the ideas and experiments of constructive democracy. The fact that the circulation of the newspaper doubled and redoubled beyond anything then known in journalism and in the face of ridicule heaped on virulence proves that the nation, too, was feeling its way towards this new democracy. Naturally enough, Greeley was a puzzle both to the radicals and to the standpats of his day. The working man's advocate said of him, quote, If ever there was a nondescript, it is Horace Greeley. One night you may hear him make a patriotic speech at a repeal meeting. The next day he will uphold a labor-swindling paper money system. We should be sorry to be driven to the conclusion that such a man could be actuated only by paltry partyism, end quote. The abolitionists were incensed when he wrote to the anti-slavery convention at Cincinnati, quote, if I am less troubled concerning the slavery prevalent in Charleston or New Orleans, it is because I see so much slavery in New York, which appears to claim my first efforts. Wherever the ownership of the soil is so engrossed by a small part of the community that the far larger number are compelled to pay whatever the few may see fit to exact for the privilege of occupying and cultivating the earth, there's something very like slavery. Wherever opportunity to labor is obtained with difficulty, it is so deficient that the employing class may virtually prescribe their own terms and pay the laborer only such share as they choose of the product, there is a very strong tendency to slavery, end quote. The Whigs and protectionists used him but dreaded him. The Express charged him with, quote, attempting incessantly to excite the prejudices of the poor against the rich and in the general to array one class of society against the other. We charge the Tribune with representing constantly that there is a large amount of suffering arising from want of employment, and that this employment the rich might give, we charge the Tribune with overrating entirely the suffering of the poor, all of which tallies with and is a portion of the very material which our opponents use to prejudice the poor against the Whigs as a party." End quote. Two years after his attack by the Express, the courier read him out of the party. Quote, there can be no peace in the Whig ranks while the New York Tribune is continued to be called Whig. The principles of the Whig party are well-defined. They are conservative and inculcate a regard for the laws and support of all established institutions of the country. They eschew radicalism in every form. They sustain the constitution and the laws. They foster a spirit of patriotism. The better way for the tribune would be at once to admit that it is only Whig on the subject of the tariff and then devote itself to the advocacy of anti-rent, abolition, foyerite, and vote yourself a farm doctrines. End quote. 
John R. Commons continues. These quotations give us the ground of Greeley's isms, the elevation of labor by protecting and reorganizing industry. When the protective tariff favored by the Whigs was something different in his hands. The tariff arguments of his boyhood had been capitalistic arguments. Protect capital, their spokesman said, because wages are too high in this country. Eventually, wages will come towards the European level and we shall not need protection. Greeley reversed this plea. Protect the wage earner, he said, in order that he may rise above his present condition of wages slavery. The only way to protect him against the foreign pauper is to protect the price of his product. But since capital owns and sells his product, we needs must first protect capital. This is unfortunate, and we must help the laborer as soon as possible to own and sell his product himself. We know right well, Greeley writes, that a protective tariff cannot redress all wrongs. The extent of its power to benefit the laborer is limited by the force and pressure of domestic competition for which political economy has as yet devised no remedy, end quote. Here was the field for his socialism. It would do for domestic competition what protection would do for foreign competition. Protectionism and socialism were the two wheels of Greeley's bicycle. He had not learned to ride on one. But the socialism which Greeley espoused would not be recognized today. It is now condescendingly spelled utopianism. He felt that the employers were victims of domestic competition, just as were the laborers. And he assumed that they would be just as glad as the laborers to take something else. What he offered to both was a socialism of class harmony, not one of class struggle. In the idealistic interpretation of history, there are two kinds of idealism, a higher and a lower. Greeley's significance is the struggle of the two in his mind, the elimination of the unfit from each, and the survival and coalescence of the fit in the Republican Party. The higher idealism came to him through the transcendental philosophers of his time. The lower came from the working classes. The higher idealism was humanitarian, harmonizing, persuasive. The lower was class conscious, aggressive, coercive. The higher was a plea for justice. The lower, a demand for rights. In 1840, Greeley was a higher idealist. In 1847, he had shaved down the higher and dovetailed in the lower. In 1854, the Republican Party built both into a platform. Let us see the origins of these two levels of idealism before they came to Greeley. Now, I'll stop right there. This is page 475. You can read the full piece in your own time as you see fit. If you're interested, I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. But I just want to take a moment to reflect on what's being said here. As far as the Republican Party and Horace Greeley and socialism and transcendentalism, this idea of making a pitch that is chiefly interested in the economic, but predicated on socialistic values. At a certain point, you have to admit that the Republican Party was imperfect, fallible, and maybe even corrupt in some of its principles, not terribly conservative, and also definitely still today, maybe especially today, is distinct from conservative political philosophy. 
Conservatives very often find a home in the Republican Party, but that is not to say, that does not mean that the Republican Party is oh so conservative. There is something distinct, though related, about the interests of conservative Americans today and the Republican Party. But I dare say, when you read what's being described about Horace Greeley by John R. Commons, after having read a letter from John Adams to John Taylor, boy howdy, do you see the potential for what John Adams was predicting, what he was observing from history, what he was trying to protect against in a separation of powers, checks and balances. You see the potential for the worst men getting the nomination or really deciding who is going to run, who is going to win, who is going to lead in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. How do they do this? They appeal to class consciousness in both cases. And in some sense, John Adams would, and Edmund Burke would, recognize differing classes. Say, for instance, the letter to John Taylor about who is an aristocrat. But I want you to consider another quote taken from Russell Kirk in The Conservative Mind. The pure Democrat is the practical atheist. Ignoring the divine nature of law and the divine establishment of spiritual hierarchy, he is the unconscious instrument of diabolical powers for the undoing of mankind. Reduce the solemn mystery and infinite variety of human life to the pseudo-mathematical principle of the greatest happiness for the greatest number, utilitarianism, and you establish a tyranny of prigs in the world, a hell of loneliness in the world of spirit, end quote. That's quite the statement, ladies and gentlemen. That's quite the statement. Pure democracy, the pure Democrat is the practical atheist. You can have people who are voting Republican and even working in the Republican Party who are actually at root for pure democracy. You can. All they're interested in at the end of the day is who has 51% of the votes. That is what carries the day. But it's practical atheism, and it's not conservative. It's not conservative. Conservatism, by contrast, again, to go back to the quote over at the Catholic World Report article by Nathaniel Blake, Burke declared that men do not make laws, they merely ratify or distort the laws of God. And isn't it interesting too, John R. Common, starting out a progressive and a Christian, by the end, his work was just progressive. It wasn't Christian. How does he characterize Horace Greeley? How does he characterize the formation of the Republican Party a mere 50 years prior to when he's writing this? He likens it to natural selection. He likens it to those who are unfit being weeded out and only those who are fit being left. You know, it's interesting as I'm reading The Conservative Mind, I note that Bantham, for instance, is said to have been a big hit. He was very popular with. He was very well received by the new industrialists who also very much liked 
Charles Darwin's work on the origin of species. Insofar as you had these industrialists who were the new money, who had wealth, but now they wanted political power and they needed to pry that political power from the hands of the aristocracy that was endowed with certain privileges, certain titles, certain influence, certain authority, certain lands and allowances from the crown for services rendered to the crown, to his or her majesty. Charles Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection was just the ticket. Bentham's utilitarianism was just the ticket. And what is utilitarianism? At root, for those men who wanted more wealth and power for themselves, it was, we can promise you more wealth and a better standard of life if you take power away from the church and the crown and you give that power increasingly to us. And now we have a very interesting mix in the U.S., for instance, for example, where the industrialists are the status quo. They are the establishment now. They're in the position that previously was occupied by the Roman Catholic Church and by the king in the previous social imaginary. There were clerics. There was the clerisy, but the clerisy was the Church of England or it was the Roman Catholic Church. Now the clerisy is academia and the scientific consensus. Now the men in the white lab coats are the priests. Your doctors, your pharmacists, they are the priests performing various rites and rituals, reading the liturgy for you. Ultimately, though, they are supporting the industrialists who are your new aristocrats. The men who own the biggest corporations, the biggest monopolies, yes, they pay more in taxes, but it's a small price to pay insofar as being the best men, they all have an agreement to maintain a system which is working. And in some sense, and you have to take care here, because it's a moving target, what conservative actually means. In some sense, people who say they're conservative who want to maintain that are walking in the tradition of Edmund Burke, where he says, well, we want to take care that we're not changing too much too fast because you don't want to be a revolutionary. You don't want to be a radical and just throw out all convention. But oh, by the way, in case it's not obvious, Edmund Burke and John Adams would not approach these questions and these problems the way that a Horace Greeley did or a John R. Commons did. They wouldn't frame these things the way these men did, where there's a kind of liturgy being referenced when John R. Commons describes Horace Greeley in relation to Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species or likens his development of a political philosophy or engagement through the Tribune to an inventor. It's not by accident. It's not for no reason that these things are fellow travelers as far as the describing of political science where the working class origins of the Republican Party are concerned. It's not by accident. But this is where you have to recognize that to be a conservative is something very different than to be a Republican To be a conservative in the Burkean sense is very different than voting for 
the guy with the R behind his name just because he's got the R behind his name. Really, truly, the question has to be asked, what are we conserving? Why are we conserving it? What do we believe about God? Because that is upstream of the culture, and the culture is upstream of the political reality. If it seems as though our political system is very badly broken and it produces the likes of, rewards the likes of, prefers the likes of a Mike Pence, even when he says, that's not my concern. If the cities are becoming dirtier, less safe, less affordable to live in, more chaotic, that's not my concern. All the while, there's a show of Christian faith, but then is it like John R. Commons? original aspiration to combine Christian faith with the progressive program. And if you can't have both at a certain point, you let go of your Christian faith. Is it like that? Quite frankly, I would rather prefer John Adams, Unitarian or no. And oh, by the way, not all Unitarians stayed Unitarians, really, truly. Think of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, for instance. He was a Unitarian for a time, and then he realized that was nonsense, (laughs) which it is. It is nonsense. But just briefly, I want to mention, again, the obvious, but why it's important might not be as obvious to everyone. I live in Greeley, Colorado. My family lives in Greeley, Colorado. Greeley originally was a utopian colony called the Union Colony. It was originally an experiment in some of these kinds of ideas that we're reading about Horace Greeley having been enamored of, John R. Cummins having been enamored of. These things don't work when they're tried, and that's not going to stop certain people from trying them again and again, but just scaling them up. We have to think rightly about what our responsibility is, what our businesses? What are our affairs that we would mind our own affairs and live a quiet life and aspire to the same? And oh, by the way, what are our reasons when we say, no, we shouldn't do X, Y, and Z? What are our reasons? I think right now it's a very important time for us to decide, for us to choose who we will serve, whether the gods that our forefathers served in Egypt, or Yahweh God. Choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Maybe at a certain point I write a book, and this is why we serve the Lord. But as I consider us starting something with the Welfare of the City Project in a place like Greeley, Colorado, named after Horace Greeley, who has this kind of a legacy, who had this kind of a mindset. That's part of why there was a willingness to name Greeley Greeley. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be important to have the right reasons. It's going to be important to know what we're about and to know that we're about these things because we want to ratify the laws of God. We want to agree with God because God is always right, as Abraham Lincoln once said. Whether he was always abiding by that, I think he would probably have been the first to admit it was not so. But our effort, our ambition, our desire, our intention, our commitment must be to agree with God. By God's grace, there's more of a blessing in that 
but he gives more grace. I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.